So you're on your way home from the hospital and you swing by the pharmacy to pick up those new medications that Dr. Tyler prescribed. You're looking forward to sleeping in your own bed and eating real non-hospital food. The pharmacist calls you up and says, that will be $987. Your eyes cartoonishly pop out of your head and your jaw drops. If your blood pressure wasn't high before, it certainly is now. Are these pills made out of gold? And as an aside, if you have lupus, they actually might be. Uh, In this episode, we'll be talking about some of the reasons why medications are so expensive, and we talk about how you as a consumer can reduce your own medication costs. A few disclaimers. We created this podcast to educate and entertain our listeners. We're doctors, but we're not your doctor. The information we share is not medical advice, and you should always consult your own doctor. Also, please note that we are doctors for adults and are not trained or qualified to comment on pediatric care. We'll be mentioning some brand names throughout this podcast. However, we are not compensated in any way for these references, and these reflect our own experiences working for over 10 years in this field. Our topic today also largely applies to U.S. citizens and residents, but listeners from other countries might still appreciate the insight into what goes into the development of these medications. I'm Dave. And I'm Tyler. And we are hospitalist physicians. And if you don't know what a hospitalist is, we have an episode uh, a few weeks back that that will help explain that. But today we're going to be talking about the cost of medications and why they cost so much. And believe it or not, I actually learned a lot about this when I was in a pharmacology course as an undergraduate. And ironically, I don't ever recall really having a lecture along these lines in medical school. Tyler, do you remember ever having any talk about this in medical the school? The cost of medicine, not even close. Yeah. No. I, I first, not it, even touched. It seemed strange because this was, a, I remember this class in detail and it was just a fascinating lecture. But in, in my experience and in my reading and research, I find that there are two main factors that go into medication cost. There is drug research and development costs. And the second factor is what price do drug companies think that the market will support? There are a few other things that go into it. I would say regulatory aspects also raise some costs, but I sort of lump these in with the R&D costs. Some drugs are also quite expensive to manufacture and may require proprietary biotechnology, but that's a little bit beyond the scope of our talk today. The The two big factors that I, that I really want us to focus on today are drug research and development, and then what drug companies, how drug companies arrive at that cost and at that price. So starting with research and development... Drug companies usually start off with an idea, usually after discovering a potential molecular target. This could be a protein that sits on the outside of a cell that could be turned on or off. It might be an enzyme in a bacteria that we can target to disrupt or that we can target so that the immune system can tag it and destroy that bacteria. You're talking about antibiotics there? Is that? Yeah. So, you know, talking about bacterial disruption, that would be things Mm -hmm. more like antibiotics trying to target receptors on the surface of cells, that would be things like, you know, antidepressants, pain medications, anxiety medications. I would say most of the medications that we prescribe from day to day. So once scientists have found this potential target, they start creating a series of chemical compounds that might be able to interact with that target. And they'll make hundreds of these compounds with varieties of different variations in their structure. And I sort of think about this as like finding a lock and then making a bunch of different keys that could fit inside that lock, hoping that at least one of the tooth arrangements on the key will be able to turn and open that lock. A lot of trial and error, it sounds like. Yeah. And that's basically what what these drug companies will do when they find a compound that looks promising. 
They'll make a lot of variations of it, and then they'll test all of them to see which one is going to work best, which one is going to have fewer side effects, which one's going to be the most specific. So each of these individual compounds gets some numerically coded name like R347X82. The drug company will then patent each of these compounds so that another drug company can't take their idea ahead of them. Once that patent takes effect, however, the clock starts ticking for the drug company to make money from their new medication. U.S. drug patents expire after 20 years, and I'll explain later how that factors into drug costs. Now, most of these compounds will not be commercially viable. Some of these compounds may be ineffective. Perhaps they worked in a test tube, but when they are given to an actual person, they just don't work. Some of them may have lethal side effects or may have unpleasant side effects. Imagine there's a drug that perfectly lowers cholesterol but causes explosive diarrhea. You're going to have a hard time convincing patients that they should take that. So very few of these compounds actually make it to the final phases of testing. And according to a Forbes article from 2013, 95% of experimental medications fail to be both effective and safe. So companies generally pick the most promising, most successful of the remaining compounds and submit it for FDA approval and marketing. Sounds just like in the Highlander, there can be only one. There can be only one. This one winner has to recoup all the research and development costs that went into testing all the other compounds, plus any of the other companies' projects that may have failed along the way. Sort of like why guacamole costs more at restaurants, right? (laughs) The same 2013 article from Forbes reported an average cost of bringing a single drug to market was $5.5 billion. I looked at some other sources because I didn't want to just go with with one, and I actually found a range of $3 billion to $11 billion per drug to bring them to market. That's an astonishing amount of money. And that amount of money might be easy to recoup if you've created a groundbreaking blockbuster drug that a ton of people will need or want. But if you're creating a drug that treats an obscure disease like a rare cancer, you're going to have to charge a lot of money per dose for that drug to even come close to recouping your loss. I mentioned before that drug patents lasted 20 years in the U.S. Let's say that Tyler and I discover a mechanism to cure flatulence, and we want to develop a drug to stop people from passing gas. We'll spend about three years doing development and in-house testing. We start off developing and patenting our compounds. Then we test them in a lab setting to see what compounds actually have a chance of working. So at this point, three years have passed. After all this testing we finally have one or more compounds that looks promising. So now we start clinical trials, and these will take six to seven years. We start off testing our medication in small groups of healthy people, and we test for safety and to establish a dosing range. This is where all those laundry lists of side effects come from, because they polled these participants for any symptoms that they have whatsoever. As we move into other phases of testing, we start to test people afflicted with the disease in order to establish effectiveness, and we continue to watch for side effects. The entire point of this testing is to make sure our drug is safe and also to make sure that it's effective. This process is incredibly expensive. We have to manufacture our drug, pay researchers to run the trials, pay early participants who agree to take a potentially risky drug, and pay for any issues that arise from drug safety. We also have to pay to monitor for any problems after the drug has been released. But let's say we have one compound that makes it through all of these trials. Our drug appears to be effective, and it appears to be safe. By this point, 10 years have already elapsed from when we patented our medication. Now it's time to name our drug and send it to the FDA for approval. 
We made a drug that cures flatulence, so I think I'd like to call it Fartagon. No, I don't see. We disagreed with the name of this drug. I don't think I like that. I think we should call it Deflatus. I okay, Deflatus. I I think I could go deflatus, for that. Deflatus. Yeah, yeah, we'll do Deflatus. Now, if our drug is a life-saving drug, and some might argue that this one is, we might be able to fast-track it through FDA approval in six months. Back in 2001, there was a medication that was in clinical trials that basically was nothing short of miraculous. Uh, The medication was called Gleevec, and it was the first of its kind at targeting a specific chromosomal abnormality. And this medication was so effective at treating patients with a certain type of leukemia that we were seeing that people were already in, that people were staying in remission and living normal lives after this. And it took some people in administrations to step in and fast track this medication. Nowadays, there is a process to fast track life-saving medications and get that done in six months. Unfortunately, a flatulence medication might save some relationships, but it's probably not going to save lives. So it's probably going to take our medication two years to get through FDA approval. You know, our ticking timer is now down to eight years for us to earn a profit on this medication that statistically has cost us $5 billion so far. So we're already at eight years for this? We've only got eight years to make a profit. What happens after seven, eight years? So once our patent expires, anyone can start manufacturing our drug. They may have to spend a little bit of money figuring out how to make it or reverse engineer it, but that's a pretty tiny cost compared to the billions we spent developing it and testing it. They'll be able to manufacture a generic version for pennies, and no matter how much we lower the price, they'll always be able to undercut us. So our drug company executives get together because we've got to decide how are we going to price this drug. The price has to be high enough that we recoup our costs. We guess how much we'll sell in the coming seven to eight years, and we try to guess what people will be will be willing to pay for it. And that's pretty key because this is where I think a lot of people take issue with drug costs. And we're going to talk about this some more. There's one other facet that we haven't taken into consideration, and that is profit. Drug companies cannot function if they do not earn a profit. And this profit has to be good enough to entice investors into some pretty risky investments. There used to be a medication on the market called Vioxx. It was an anti-inflammatory medication that was probably stronger than what you'd get over the counter and was supposed to be safer than medications like ibuprofen. There are trials underway that were actually showing it could reduce a person's risk of developing colon cancer. Uh, It had already been put on the market as an anti-inflammatory to help with arthritis pain, things like that, but they were trying to get additional indications for it, and so they were testing it to see if it could prevent colon cancers. In the course of these trials, they discovered that there was a higher incidence of heart attacks in people who took Vioxx. That alone was enough for the FDA to render Vioxx unsafe or to to declare Vioxx was unsafe, and they pulled it from the market. Not only did Merck not recoup the cost they spent developing Vioxx, but they had to pay an additional $4.85 billion in settlements for people who may have had heart attacks from it. So imagine now that you're an investor, and if you have a 401k with a mutual fund in it, it, you probably have some exposure to drug companies. But if you're an investor, do you really want to give your money to a company that may spend it all and never earn a profit or not even earn a profit for more than 10 years? You might rather be tempted to invest in something like Google or Tesla or even your local electric company. 
So for drug companies to attract investors, there has to be some expectation that there's going to be a huge reward to offset the massive risks that come with these investments. Without greed and without profit, this whole process would slow down and we wouldn't see the the Gleevex of the world being developed. So greed and profit are a good thing. I'm, I'm just kidding. No, no, no. I actually include, you know, um, I early on, I had included the line from uh, Wall Street where Gordon Gecko gets up and he says, greed is good. Um, and this is sort of an, an example of where greed yeah. is good because greed is what drives this innovation. You know, surely it's driven by, you know, scientists who want to find out the next the next thing. But I think it's also these scientists would never get funded if it weren't for greedy people who knew right. they were going to get a payoff at some point. So what are some of the criticisms of the drug companies? There are some companies out there who are truly in it to make as much as possible. I'm not sure if you remember the EpiPen scandal that happened a few years ago, but I think that scandal illustrates this pretty well. For our listeners, an EpiPen is a device that you hold against your thigh and it will automatically inject you with a pre-measured dose of epinephrine. It's designed for people with life-threatening allergies to things like bee stings, peanuts, shellfish. When someone has a life-threatening anaphylactic reaction, their airway will swell and close up and they won't be able to breathe. This pen is designed so that someone panicking and unable to breathe can rapidly use it. Uh, in 2009, a drug company named Mylan acquired the rights to produce EpiPens, and they started gradually increasing the price of these pens. In 2009, it cost $109 for a two-pack. By 2016, they cost $608. This ultimately meant that some vulnerable people were unable to afford them, and the company was charging more, basically just because they could. Everyone's knee-jerk reaction is you know how despicable these drug company executives were, and I kind of have to agree. Uh, in a truly capitalist market, though, someone else should have been able to make their own form of EpiPens. You know, epinephrine's not patented; um, just the pen device was. So I mean, somebody our body else. makes epinephrine, so we yeah, exactly. So, you know, somebody else could have made an EpiPen device that was cheaper and could have competed with this one that Mylan was selling. And had another company been able to get an alternate auto injector approved and brought into the market they easily could have undercut Mylan. I'm not sure if this was a regulatory issue because you do have to get approval of medical devices before they can be brought onto the market, but this that would have been a good a good time when, you know, competition would have would have corrected that price change. Another criticism is that US taxpayers subsidize some of this research and we ought to therefore benefit. The NIH National Institute of Health, the federal government organization, spends a lot of money in research grants, and some of our best ideas for drugs come out of this research. The entire world really profits from this research, as scientists in other countries can learn from these studies. Drug companies, too, profit from this research as they use the the data from these studies to develop their new drugs. Shouldn't the U.S. taxpayer profit, too? I suppose you could argue that we profit in the form of having new drugs or new innovations enter the market. This research also creates lots of jobs for U.S. citizens, but still, should drugs developed from NIH research be discounted in some way for U.S. citizens? You know, many people think drug companies are evil, um, but I I get a very pro-drug company vibe from you right now. Uh, I think that there are surely some bad actors among the drug companies, but I don't think that they're entirely evil. In fact, I think we doctors get to take a lot of credit for some of their achievements, the patient who's cured from cancer usually credits and thanks their oncologist, but not the drug company that may have developed the medication that cured their cancer. Ultimately, I think most drug companies behave 
predictably within the economic and regulatory framework that we've created for them. I think the conversation ought to be, how do we change that framework so that we continue to foster drug development in a way that can also lower drug costs? So what are some things that like we and like our listeners can do to lower their own drug costs? Well, I came up with a list. Number one is pretty obvious. Get generic drug drugs where possible. Uh, I find that patients rarely need the latest and greatest drug, and we often prescribe those more for patient convenience than anything else. For most run-of-the-mill conditions like hypertension, we have plenty of great drugs that are off-patent and should be very cheap. The only exception to that would be things like Synthroid, which is a thyroid a medicine used to treat thyroid conditions. Sometimes it is better to get at least to get your Synthroid from a consistent source, and generics are not always sourced from the same factory or from the same supplier. So that's the only place where I sort of deviate from that. But even then, if your Synthroid is being cost prohibitive, then I think you know generics are still a safe way to go. You know, the second thing you can do is to use low cost pharmacies. Some pharmacies offer medications at very low prices. For the last 11 years that I've been practicing, Walmart has had a $4 list where you can go get a 30-day supply of your medication for $4 and a 90-day supply for $10. I've also found that many grocery store chains will fill certain prescriptions, usually antibiotics, for free. I've sent so many people to Publix to have their Bactrim or Cipro filled for free. These pharmacies generally do this to earn your business so that you'll get all your medications filled there or so you'll shop for groceries while you're waiting for your prescription. I think people should take advantage. I think people should also consider mail order pharmacies for their routine medications as these can often be cheaper. Some will even pre-sort and package your medications for you, meaning you tear open you know, the Wednesday evening package and it's all the meds you were due to take that evening. Insurance companies will often prefer if not insist on these services. The fourth option would be, and it's sort of along the same lines, but it's shop around. Different pharmacies have vastly different pricing, and some enterprising websites track these prices for you. I personally have gone to goodrx.com many times to help patients find a necessary medication at a cheaper price. If you're willing to make the extra trips, you can get medication A from pharmacy Y and medication B from pharmacy Z. Number five, share concerns with your doctor. I generally assume that drug cost is always a concern, but I'm not sure that every doctor does. Your doctor may be able to prescribe less expensive alternatives or even tell you which medications you should be prioritizing if you can't afford them all. As an example, there are two medications that we usually prescribe for a condition called hepatic encephalopathy. The first one is lactulose, which is dirt cheap. The other one is rifaximin, which is insanely expensive. Both are important, but in my experience, lactulose is clearly more important. I can't tell you how many times I prescribed Rifaximin only to have a patient call later asking if they really need it. There's not really a legally safe answer to that question, but if I was having to pick between paying my rent and paying for Rifaximin, I would skip the Rifaximin, and I'm sure I'll probably get some hate mail for that. Number six, don't assume your doctor knows what your insurance company covers. Individual insurance companies negotiate with individual drug companies for price breaks, and some negotiate better than others or have preferential relationships with one company over another. So that cholesterol medicine your doctor prescribed might be five times the cost of an equally effective alternate. Most insurance plans will publish a formulary of preferred medications. Usually you can review your medications against this formulary and see if you're getting meds that are, not, that are off formulary. Your doctor probably won't have time to do this legwork, but sometimes 
new charting systems will report this information. I know in our own charting system, I've not found that it's always accurate. Yeah, that I want to say here, like I do, I want to emphasize what you said. Your doctor probably won't have time to do this legwork. I think that is probably true, but maybe we could add on there. Uh, we might not be able to help. If I had a patient and even if I knew their insurance company in front of me, like if I knew they were, for example, Blue Cross or Aetna. Oh, yeah. And then they're going to say, which one would Aetna or Blue Cross cover? I would say, I have no idea. And yeah. I don't, oh. I wouldn't even know how to get that information. People ask me all the time, even if you try to get that information, it often depends on which plan they're a part of. So yeah. they may be a Blue Cross subscriber, but if they're not Blue Cross subscriber with X company, then they may not get the drug, uh, the, the same formulary of drugs as another Blue Cross subscriber. Yeah. So, that's why it's important for patients to sort of do some of this legwork too. Yeah, I don't think I could. And then I've got 40 patients to see this week. Yeah. You know, I don't think I can help all 40 of them like that. You yeah. Know? But if a patient came to me and said, hey, you prescribed lisinopril, but on this formulary, it says that- Losartan. Yeah, Losartan's, you know, the the preferred medication. I'm probably going to say, okay, let's go with Losartan. Yeah, that's you know? Yeah. You know, because that, that's an easy substitution. Yeah. So number seven- Ask your doctor what drugs are necessary for your health and survival and which are more for symptom management or improvement. If you're taking a medication for symptom management, assess whether it's actually helping you. Maybe you started taking Pepsid 15 years ago for reflux. If you're no longer having reflux, it could be that the medication works, or it could be that you've changed your lifestyle and no longer need that medication. Number eight, know your medications and know why you're taking them. In an ideal world, your doctor would review your medication list and trim away the ones you no longer need. But realistically, most clinic doctors don't have time to do that, or at least they won't automatically do that unless you ask them. I can't tell you how many times I've had patients come to me in the hospital and say, I'm paying so much for these medications. Do you think you can trim this list down? And I would love to, but it's not. That's really something that a clinic doctor who knows them better ought to be doing. And I I get in that in that situation, I'll give them a a off the cuff unofficial recommendation but yeah. then I will preface that by saying you should ask your clinic doctor here's a nice suggestion but you should ask your clinic yeah. doctor i would say 9 times out of 10 i can trim more than one medication from that list yeah. but i'm usually still saying okay you need to ask your doctor why are you taking vitamin d you know what is that meant to treat you know do you still need to be on that that's probably a bad example but you know yeah. anyway number 9 if you are hospitalized and you're uninsured, ask to talk to the case manager or social worker about your concerns. Hospitals are incentivized to keep you at home for at least 30 days, and they might be able to get all or part of your prescriptions filled or covered for you so that you're more likely to stay out of the hospital for that 30 days. Number 10, if you're having financial hardships, look for medication assistance programs. Case managers and social workers may know about these as well, but you can often find information at drug company websites. Most major drug companies have programs set up so that low-income or disadvantaged individuals can still get their medications, sometimes at a discount and sometimes even for free. And number 11, take good care of yourself. Healthy eating and regular exercise can go a long way in preventing numerous diseases. That cheeseburger may cost less than the salad, but not when you factor in the extra cholesterol medication you'll have to take. Well, those are my thoughts on where a lot of our drug costs come from. And the things you can do to lower your own drug costs. If you have any questions about this, please certainly email us at sickenoughpodcast at gmail.com. That's spelled S I C K E N O U G H 
P-O-D-C-A-S-T at gmail.com. I'd like to thank Michael Cobrin and Pixabay.com for our intro music. And I'd also like to thank our sound engineer, Alex. I'd like to thank Swede Custom Studios and Two Birds Artwork for providing us with the artwork for our thumbnail on the website. Yep. Uh, and thank you all for listening. Look forward to the next episode.